Well, let's turn to God's Word once more, this time to the book of Exodus and chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, on page 73 in the Church Bible, and we're going to read together verses 1 to 6. Uh, We're working our way through the Ten Commandments uh, as we continue on in our series in Exodus, and we come this morning to the Second Commandment, which is recorded here in verses 4 to 6. But let's read from verse 1 of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. This too is the word of the Lord. Many people are a little bit confused about the difference between the first and the second commandments. The first commandment tells us that we are not to have any other gods. And the second commandment tells us that we are not to make any idols. Uh, And many people can't really see the difference between those two things. Surely having no other gods means that you won't have any idols. But there is a very important difference between the first and the second commandment. They are talking about two quite different and distinct things. The first commandment is about who we worship. The second commandment is about how we worship. The first commandment forbids worshipping false gods. The second commandment forbids us to worship the true God in a false way, by using idols in our worship. Images of God are absolutely forbidden. We're not to make them, we're not to bow down to them, we're not to worship them. And perhaps we might be tempted to think that if there is one commandment that we do not break today, especially as Reformed Presbyterians, then it is this one, the second commandment. But as we have already seen, and as we'll see again and again, these commandments that come from the mouth of God are much more searching than we might think. So let's look at this second commandment uh, under three headings or three questions this morning. 
First of all, uh, an important question, what is an idol? What is an idol? The word here that is translated, or at least in some translations is translated idol, is anything that is carved, anything that is hewn. Uh, verse 4, the ESV translates it, a carved image. There were ten words in the Old Testament for idols, and this one is the broadest of all those words, the most general term for an image of a god. It describes something that has been worked, that has been carved, that has been shaped to represent God, and which is then used in the worship of God. Strict Judaism and strict Islam take this commandment very, very literalistically. And they would forbid making statues or painting paintings of anything at all that is in heaven or on the earth or in the sea. They would say that is forbidden by the second commandment. Uh, and so their art uh, is very, very abstract. But that's not, I think, what this commandment is talking about. That's not what is being forbidden here. Uh, this is not saying that you can't have your portrait painted. Um, many of you have your portrait that has been, uh, uh, well, I want to say scribbled because that's what it looks like, but it's, of course that's it's not what it is. But some of you have your portrait done by Vincent in uh, that kind of uh, style that he has of, of scribbling and, and making it look incredibly lifelike. Uh, so th that's not what's being forbidden here. What is being forbidden is using images in worship, making an idol, making an image to worship, to use in worship. Idols were very, very common in the world of Moses' day. All the nations had them, and they used them in their worship. They proliferated. The people of God seemed very, very strange, very out of touch to other religious people at the time because they didn't have idols. Um, when uh, the Roman general Pompey invaded Jerusalem, in 63 BC and went into the temple and went in to the most holy place in Jerusalem. He came out almost doubled over with laughter and he said, it's empty. It's empty. These Jews, they, they don't have a God at all because there was no image. There was no idol in the temple. That's not what the pagans did. They had many, many idols, and they built elaborate, expensive temples in which to house their idols. Now, pagans were not stupid. They didn't think that these idols that they made were actually their gods. The pagan priests used to eat the food that they themselves left out as offerings to their gods. The priests would come and they would wash the idols. 
they would move the idols because they couldn't move for themselves. They couldn't wash themselves. So the heathen did not think that these idols were actually their gods. But they did believe that there was a very close and real link between the idol and their god in at least three ways. They believed that their idols helped to get God's power. They believed that their idols helped to get God's power. The idol was a way of manipulating their gods. It was a way of getting their god to do what they wanted him to do. In other words, the idol was a kind of magic talisman. If you came before the idol in his temple or her temple, if you observed the proper ceremony, uh, if you went through the ritual, if you said the, the magic words, then that would ensure that the God's power was transmitted to his worshippers. As long as you had the right sacrifices, the right form of words, that's how they use these idols to get God's power. And God is saying, my people are not to think that the power of their sovereign God can be manipulated or conjured in that kind of a way. The true and living God who fills heaven and earth cannot be manipulated or tamed or domesticated by his worshippers. And that's the mistake that the Israelites made again and again. They learned it to their cost when they brought out the ark. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 4 to fight against the Philistines? And they thought if we have the ark, then we have God's power. And we can manipulate God's power. And we can compel a victory here. And they learned to their cost that God is not at their beck and call to be summoned like some kind of genie in a bottle. And then you, he pops up and you tell him what you want him to do and he has to obey. No, the God of, the, the, the God of Israel, the true and living God, is not like the gods of the nations. He does whatever pleases him, the psalmist says in Psalm 135. So that's one way in which uh, the, the, the pagans believed that there was a link between the idol and their god. It helped them to get God's power. Uh, then secondly, they believed that the idol helped them to grasp God's person. The idol helped them to grasp God's person. The idol represented an aspect of their god's character or his being. Just in the same way that we use pictures with our children to help them to understand abstract and difficult and complex concepts. We use illustrations. If they ask about electricity, we don't talk about the flow of electrons from positive to negative, at least I assume we don't. Uh, we, we use pictures to try to explain to them what electricity is like. And that's how the pagans used idols, as visual aids to help them to grasp, to understand something that otherwise was abstract 
and unseen. So the god Baal was depicted with a bull idol, a calf idol, because it is a symbol of strength and fertility. Hindu idols have many, many hands, and that's a way of depicting what they believe about the power of their gods. They have many, many eyes. That's a picture of seeing everything and knowing everything. And God is very clear that the infinite majesty of his being and his character can't possibly be shrunk down and narrowed and reduced to a mere snapshot or a soundbite. And that's exactly what idols did. So they used idols to get God's power and to grasp God's person. And then thirdly, they used idols to guarantee God's presence. To guarantee God's presence. They believed that as long as they had their idols with them, their gods would be with them. And so it didn't really matter what kind of people they were. It didn't really matter how they lived. It didn't really matter what they believed. As long as they had the image, as long as they had the idol safely installed in its temple, well, then they had God's presence with them. And again, God is saying in this commandment, I don't bend like that to the whims of my people. And it does matter how you live. It does matter the kind of people you are. It does matter what you believe. It does matter how you treat one another. And he withdraws his presence when his people grieve him and are disobedient. In fact, we we read a very graphic illustration of that in Jeremiah 4. If my people sin, if they will not repent, if they harden their hearts instead of breaking up the fallow ground of their hearts, well then I'm going to pour out all these chastisements and punishments upon you. I'll send the Babylonian army to devastate your land. His presence is not tied in any way to this physical representation that's made by a man. So what is an idol? It is an image invented by human beings to help them to understand their God, to help them to coerce their God and manipulate his power. And it is absolutely forbidden. The Israelites are not to use them. What is an idol? But then a second question, uh, how do we make idols? How do we make idols? Idols are representations of the God. They're designed to be worship aids, to help the worshippers to access God's power, to understand their gods better. And so it's not very hard at all, is it, to see how uh, many churches or so-called churches break this commandment today with their icons 
and their statues of the saints and of the Virgin Mary and even of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Eastern Orthodox churches and in Roman Catholic churches, the worshippers not only have these images, they not only make these images, they bow down to them and they kiss them and they pray to them and they do homage to them and it is absolutely impossible to justify. Now in defense, I suppose uh, the better of these worshippers would say these are not objects of worship. We're not actually worshipping these statues or these icons. They are just helps to us in worship. The problem is that God commands not only that these things not be used in worship, but they not even be made in the first place. They're not permitted to exist at all. And the best, or perhaps the worst, illustration of the breaking of this commandment is the episode of the golden calf that we read about in Exodus 32. Please turn in your Bibles to that passage. Exodus chapter 32. It's on page 86 in the church Bible. And we'll read together just the first five verses. Exodus 32 Verses 1 to 5. The Israelites have only had this commandment a few weeks. And this is what we read. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. It's very striking, isn't it? That last sentence particularly tomorrow shall be a feast to the lord or verse four these are your gods or it could be translated this is your god o israel who brought you up out of the land of egypt we're going to have a festival to the lord in other words the israelites didn't intend for a moment to replace Yahweh, they didn't intend to replace the Lord with another God. As far as they're concerned, they're not breaking the first commandment. All they want is something to help them in their worship of the Lord. Something that would help them to focus better on the Lord. In verse 1, the problem is that Moses has disappeared. 
And God is invisible. And they want something that they can see. Their faith begins to evaporate when they can't see something. So verse 4, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. They hadn't forgotten that it was the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt. They're not replacing the Lord with a different God. They're suggesting that this golden calf represents God. And that's why they want to celebrate a festival to the Lord. They still think of themselves as worshipping the Lord. It's just that they're doing it in a way that is much more meaningful to them, much more helpful to them. What God wants in his worship doesn't come into it. All the Israelites are interested in is their feelings and their preferences in worship. It's all about them. It's all about what they find helpful and uplifting. And so this commandment safeguards and protects God's worship. It tells us how we are to worship God. And modern Evangelical Protestant churches may not have statues and icons. But this commandment reminds us, doesn't it, that it's not enough that we worship the true God. We must make sure that we worship the true God in the right way. In the way that he wants to be worshipped. This is what Reformed churches have historically called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's a very, very important uh, phrase to understand. And it comes partly from this commandment. And what it means is that we may only do in the worship of God what God himself commands us to do. What we might find helpful, what we might really enjoy doing, what we might find spiritually exciting and thrilling and enriching, those things couldn't matter less. Those things are completely irrelevant. We might think that idols are very useful things, great teaching aids, but God says you're not to have them. You're not to make them, and you're not to use them. And the tragedy is in so many churches that the decision about what is done in worship really is only about the worshiper. It's all about us. And God himself, the God that we are coming to worship, his wishes and his desires don't come into it. Some Christians find drama very, very helpful in worship. And they would say, well, this brings great freshness and vividness to the message. It brings it alive in a way that a, a long, boring sermon can't possibly do. Some Christians really enjoy listening to a soloist singing, performing, or a, or a group at the front singing. Uh, what a wonderful thing that is, you know, to hear the human voice uh, sung, uh, used so beautifully by someone who is really gifted and it gives me time to just meditate 
uh, and quietly contemplate the truths that are being sung to me. Some Christians would find a worship service bare and dull without musical instruments. Not just a piano or an organ, but a whole orchestra or a whole band up at the front. Some Christians like modern choruses with a rock beat. And others find old hymns a great source of strength and encouragement. Some Christians think that they would get much more out of worship if the sermon was just five minutes and then we just moved our chairs around and we got into little groups and we had a time of sharing and discussion. That would be much more helpful. I would find that much more useful in worship instead of listening to preaching. And the second commandment makes it clear that what we want in worship and what we find helpful in worship doesn't come into it. Because worship isn't about us. And that, I think, is at the heart of what is wrong with so much modern thinking on worship. It's all about me, the worshiper. It has to make me feel good. It has to help me. It has to meet my needs. It has to suit my character, my age profile, my preferences. And that becomes the touchstone then of whether a service of worship is good or bad. But friends, worship is not about us. It's not about what we get or at least it's not primarily about what we get. It's about what we give to the Lord. All that matters is Him, His desires, what He says He likes, what He says He wants His worshippers to do. And so it doesn't matter how helpful the Israelites might have found idols. It doesn't matter how much all the other nations were using idols. They were not to have them. They were not to use them. The question rarely seems to occur to Christians today. Has God said anything in his word about how he wants us to worship him? Sometimes it almost seems like the assumption is that God should just be jolly glad that we're worshipping him at all. He should just be pleased to take whatever we give him, that we've, that we've deigned to come and give up a whole hour of our day to worship him. Who cares whether he likes what we're doing or not? It almost feels like that's the assumption that lies behind so much modern worship. So it's good, isn't it, that there's no danger at all of Reformed Presbyterians breaking this commandment, is there? Because all we have in our worship is what God has told us in his word that he wants. No crucifixes, no statues, no icons, no incense, no candles, no drama. We certainly can't be accused of bringing anything of our own ideas into worship. We we don't have any idols, do we? Well, perhaps not outwardly. Perhaps we don't have a physical idol that falsely depicts God. 
But I wonder how many of us are guilty of carving a false image of God in our minds. That's a very real danger. It's something that the Lord rebukes his people for. In Psalm 50, verse 21, he says, You thought I was altogether like you. You thought that I was just like you. They're guilty of recasting God in their own image. And maybe we're guilty of that kind of thing. Whenever we say those horrible words, I like to think of God as fill in the blank. Who cares what you like to think of God as? It doesn't really matter how you like to think of God. What matters is what has God said about himself in his word. It's very possible, isn't it, that we neglect the Trinity, the fact that God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. And when we come to worship on the Lord's day, we come to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet perhaps we don't think of God in that way. We just think of God as God. And when we forget what he is in his being, or when we speak about God in one-dimensional terms, we focus perhaps exclusively on his love and his grace and his kindness, and we forget his justice and his righteousness. We're creating a skewed image, a false image of God. Or when we represent God as too strict, severe, cold, unloving, as if he's got an itchy trigger finger and he's just dying to, to blast you when you do something wrong. Or maybe we portray God in our minds as too easygoing. Oh, he's my pal. God and I are best mates. We're buddies. And uh, we give him a high five, fist pump to God. That's making a false image, isn't it, of God? If we think about God as an old man in the sky, floating in the clouds with a long white beard. We have our own ways of making false images of God. The scriptures tell us to think of God in all his attributes, in all his perfections, in his holiness and his righteousness and his wisdom, his power, his truth, his justice, his goodness, all these things together, infinitely, eternally, unchangeably, all at once, all perfectly combined. We need to be constantly correcting our view of God against the scripture to make sure that we're not turning God into a false image. Of course, we never do that perfectly. Our view of God is always going to be imperfect. It's going to be distorted because of our sin and our imperfect knowledge. And that's something we need to repent of as we're convicted about the second commandment. We need to recognize that we are guilty every day of worshiping God in the wrong way. Even as we come here and we do all the right things outwardly, just again as we were reading in Jeremiah chapter 4, it's not enough that we have the outward rituals correct. 
It's not enough that the men of Judah were outwardly circumcised. God wanted their hearts to be circumcised. It's not enough that we come and sing unaccompanied psalms and we offer up prayers and we hear the preaching and the reading of the word and we pronounce the benediction. It's not enough that we do all the right things outwardly. We've got to come with our hearts right or else we're not worshiping God in the right way. So what is an idol? How do we make an idol? And then lastly, why must we not make idols? Why must we not make idols? Idolatry, as we saw in Jeremiah 4, idolatry brought the judgment of God upon the people of God more than any other sin. They committed all kinds of sins, but idolatry was the one that brought God's wrath down upon them most so why was it so bad? What's the big deal about idolatry, really? Well, of course, first and foremost, it's wrong because God forbids it. And we don't need any other reason than that. That's enough in itself. It's expressly forbidden. But there are at least several other reasons why God commands us not to make idols. And the main reason that's given in Scripture is that an idol cannot represent the, the invisible and infinite God. Deuteronomy 4, 15 and 16. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. God is invisible. You didn't see God come down like a bull out of heaven when he met with you at Sinai. So don't make for yourself an image of any shape. Isaiah asks that question in Isaiah 40 verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? And the implication is that there is no image that you could possibly compare God to. Any image that the greatest genius, the most brilliant artist, the most brilliant theologian, assuming you could put all those gifts together, any image that they could create would fall infinitely short, wouldn't it, of an accurate picture of God. How could any human being, however gifted, capture the essence of the infinite, eternal, immortal, invisible God? The golden calf might have represented perhaps the tiniest little fraction of God's infinite power. But where was his goodness? Where was his grace? Where was his compassion and his holiness and his justice? The golden calf doesn't represent any of those things, does it? You see, the problem with idols, they are utterly inadequate. The official portrait of King Charles III was unveiled a few weeks ago at the end of March. Alastair Barford was commissioned to paint the portrait. Apparently he had painted the Queen and uh, he was now commissioned to paint the official portrait of King Charles. And can you imagine if as he unveiled the painting, what there was there beautifully worked 
in oils on canvas was a picture of a worm or a frog. You imagine what King Charles and those who paid the eight million pounds for the painting, can you imagine what they would say? What an insulting thing. I dare you portray the king like this. Well, multiply that sense of outrage and offense by a trillion, trillion, trillion times. That's how offensive idols are to God. They are an insult to his being and his character. They distort his nature. He looks at them and he says, that's not what I'm like. Don't think of me in that insulting way. And in any case, God has already given us a perfect image of himself. If you want to know what God is like, go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Paul says to the Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And as we look at Christ, and as we focus our gaze on him, we see God. How could any idol of wood or stone or gold, any ideas of our own invention, possibly compare to the glorious Son of God? Why should we not make idols? Because they cannot represent the infinite, invisible God. Another reason is because God is jealous for his worship. We see that in Exodus 20, verse 5. His jealousy is aroused when his people worship something that they think of as God. And it's not God at all. It makes God jealous. They're giving this false image, worship, that belongs to him alone. It's like a husband who sees his wife giving her affection and her interest and her time to another man. Time and affection and interest that belongs to him alone. And he feels blazing, righteous jealousy. And this commandment tells us that's how God feels when he sees his people worshipping him in a way that simply isn't right. And then the third reason, also in verse 5, is that idolatry corrupts future generations. Idolatry corrupts future generations. And that's such an important subject that we'll come back to it again, God willing, this evening. But just notice that the commandment ends on a note not of judgment, but of mercy. In verse 6, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God hates idolatry. He's moved to anger when we pollute his worship with idols. But idolatry is not the unforgivable sin. We saw that in Jeremiah 4. In spite of all the decades, the centuries of idolatry that had gone on before, God says to Judah, even now, if you'll change, if you'll repent, if you'll put away these detestable things, I'll forgive you. And Jesus died to take the punishment of idolaters 
as much as he died for every other sin. Our God is very merciful. We are all guilty of worshiping him in a false way. We're all guilty of false images of God. We are all convicted and condemned by this commandment. But thank God there is forgiveness and mercy freely available in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will forgive us for all the many ways in which we have failed to worship you in the right way. We pray that you will forgive us for the false images and ideas that we have of you. We pray that you would be continually transforming, reforming our understanding of you. Forgive us, we pray, for our own sins of worship. Perhaps we have done the right things, but we've done them in the wrong way. We've done them with cold hearts. We've done them with unbelieving hearts. We've done them for the wrong motives. We haven't done them with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And so we stand condemned before this commandment. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came and that he worshipped you, the true God, in the right way, perfectly. We thank you that he never broke this commandment. We thank you that it is that perfect record of worship that is given to us when we put our trust in him. And all our idolatry, all of our wrong worship is taken away at the cross. We thank you that he was willing to pay the price, to bear the punishment for our worship sins. And so, Lord, we pray that you will cleanse our consciences, that you would help us to look to Christ afresh for cleansing, for forgiveness, and for the strength that we need to worship you in spirit and in truth. May that characterize all of our worship, and especially when we gather here on the Lord's Day, in the morning and in the evening. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.